All right, this morning we are, we are kicking off our new series, uh, The Greatest Sermon Ever, but it is a tribute to The Greatest Sermon Ever. I'm not proclaiming that I'm preaching The Greatest Sermon Ever. It's a tribute to The Greatest Sermon Ever, which is the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus preached it 2,000 years ago, and it still carries an incredible amount of wisdom. It carries the essence of heaven, and it, and it carries a lot of practical instruction for how we, can, uh, how we can thrive in life, how we can live an abundant life. Um, and so, so uh, we've got these uh, daily journals, so you can track along uh, with us over the next seven weeks, and um, and just uh, there's a little bit of instruction about how to soap, how do you read scripture, and how do you um, how do you receive from it? Um, and there's also uh, prayer, some some. Uh, daily prayers, some weekly prayers, sort of weekly focuses and an overall prayer focus so that all of us as a church can just be um, praying together and journeying that together as well. So have a look at that and follow along with us. Uh, we'll be doing some, some live videos in our Facebook group uh, following along this uh, as well. Um, yes. All right. So if you've got your, your Bibles, we're, um, the Sermon on the Mount is found in Matthew 5 through to, uh, through to Matthew 7. And um, so we're going to be doing a little bit of an overview this morning, sort of unpacking, well, what is the Sermon on the Mount uh, really all about? And so I would like to suggest that, um, that, that first of all, we need to understand why, why did Jesus come? Why did he come to the earth 2,000 years ago? And, and, and I think for a lot of us, we probably understand the idea that, that he came uh, to be a substitute for us. He came to do for us what we could not do ourselves. And, and his death and resurrection on the cross, which means uh, that, that we are able to participate in his death and resurrection. And we have new life because of that. And that's, that's brilliant. And, and because of that, one day we'll be able to spend eternity with him. And that, that's great. And that's brilliant. But uh, I would like to suggest that it's actually a lot bigger than that. Um, I've heard sometimes you know, evangelists say things like, you know, if, if you were the only person on the earth, Jesus would still come uh, and die for you so that you could be, spend eternity with the Father. And, and whilst that's nice and, and kind of true, it kind of misses the point about why Jesus came. He actually came to establish the kingdom. He came to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth to establish his kingdom. And, and I would like to suggest that, that the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' kingdom manifesto. It's his kingdom manifesto. Um, and a manifesto is like a, a written statement or, or a declaration, a public declaration of the intentions, the motives, or, or the views of, of its issuer. So, so this is Jesus saying, this is what the kingdom looks like. This is what my intentions are. This is what my motives are. Uh, um, and th this is the manifesto of the kingdom. So um, lots of people... Um, say that Jesus was just a prophet. Lots of people say that Jesus was just a good teacher. I think it's pretty clear um, that Jesus existed. And I, I mean, I've had some people, uh, you know, an atheist say to me, well, I, I don't believe in Jesus. And I, I just say, well, you're not a real atheist then because any real atheist that's done any real type of study would know that Jesus existed. Uh, the question is, is he who he said he is? And, and so, so we know that, that Jesus existed, and, but some people say, well, he was just a, a prophet or a good teacher. 
Um, but, but here at Awaken, and, and every Christian church, I, I would hope, believes that he is the Son of God, that he is God with us, and, and he was sent on the divine rescue mission from heaven to, to redeem, restore, and rescue hum- humanity from ourselves. And he came to establish his kingdom, to show us what it looks like to be fully human again. He showed us what it looks like to fully love God. He demonstrated that, what it looks like to fully love God and to fully love others. And now we find ourselves in the clash of two kingdoms, called to be ambassadors of another kingdom, ambassadors of another way of living and thinking, and to bring that way of living and thinking into the world. To push back the darkness, to bring love where there is hate. To, to bring light into the darkness, to bring life where there is death. And in the Sermon on the Mount, we see that God's heart is revealed straight from the mouth of Jesus. It's filled with real world wisdom, keys to an abundant life, and practical instructions that, that will work in your life today. And, and I think that's a, a key thing. For, for us to, to go from, is Jesus just a prophet or a good teacher, to know He is the Son of, Son of God and, and His words carry life. Uh, they have the power to transform your life. Uh, and so we, we, if you believe that, then you should take this Sermon on the Mount and make it your manifesto. Uh, make it, this is the way that I intend to live because His words are life and His words are light and they will transform my life from the inside out. It will actually change the way I think, change the way I see and change the way I live. Because His words aren't just good words. His words aren't just nice thoughts, but they carry the power of heaven to transform lives. I just want to read um, just a really small part um, from one of Peter's books that I was just reading yesterday, and I thought uh, this would be um, helpful for us, I think. It says this, Only a renewed mind can constantly bring kingdom activity to, to the earth. Renewing the mind begins with repentance, that is going back to God's perspective on reality. Most Christians have repented enough to be forgiven, but not enough to see the kingdom, by both declaring the kingdom is at hand and demonstrating its effects. This is a challenging journey that can only successfully be taken in community. As a community of faith at Stairway Church, we have traveled away from being satisfied with just a church experience. We have embraced being co-laborers with Jesus in a clash of two kingdoms. We believe in the kingdom being released on earth now, and we are therefore called to invade the impossible. Our priorities are to impact the spirit world with the overwhelming victory of the cross and to manage our spirituality so that we become who we already are. Our foundation is that God is good. Our framework is that nothing is impossible. Our focus is that Jesus has won the victory. Our fruit is disciples that are releasing heaven on earth. These shared values are the context for our engagement as a community of faith in making disciples. Isn't that cool? Is anyone else not satisfied with just a church experience? Then I encourage you to engage in the Sermon on the Mount. Because this will turn your world upside down. Or maybe it'll turn it the right way up. So what is and isn't this manifesto and and who is it for? We're going to have a bit of an overview of of this sermon so you can sort of catch what what is it that Jesus was really trying to achieve with this sermon. So a, a manifesto is where you put 
all out there for people to grasp, ponder and, and ultimately understand. And, and the Sermon on the Mount is probably the most concise, definitive statement of Jesus' teachings. It, it's clearly con- contrasting the declaration of the kingdom of God and how it differed radically from what passed for religion in his day and, and also what, for what passes as religion in our day. So in some sense... It's Jesus saying, as ambassadors of another kingdom, as people who have had their hearts transformed, we should look different. We should live different. We are no longer normal. What what everyone says is normal about finances, we are abnormal. We we live with generous hearts and generous spirits. What everyone is saying about that is normal about sexuality, we, we are abnormal. When everyone is going right, Jesus is saying, go left. You are carriers of a different spirit, a different perspective, a different culture. So, so what is this manifesto and what isn't this manifesto? The first thing I think that we need to understand is that it's not a manifesto about how to get to heaven and avoid hell. There are certainly realities, but that's not what this is about. It's an entire sermon. So, so you need to think about it as, as I would preach this sermon today, Matthew 5 to Matthew 7 is Jesus' entire sermon. And so we, we can't take one bit out and say it's about this and, and not look at the context of the whole thing. And so if it's a manifesto about how to get to heaven and avoid hell, it works for some of the things, you know, don't murder. That, that's a good one, eh? Don't murder. But, but it kind of falls apart when he gets to the bit about not worrying, eh? You know, and so, so, so it, that's not what it's about. It, it, it is a manifesto, however. It is a manifesto about how to live now that you are in right standing with God. How, how do I live now that I am in right standing with God? It, it, it is directions away from things that lead to darkness and destruction and towards things that lead to life and light. It's practical instructions for how we can live in such a way that we bring the culture of heaven into this world and drive back the culture of darkness. And who, who is this manifesto for? So Jesus starts the, the Sermon on the Mount with, with nine blessed statements, nine blessed statements, and they're more commonly known as the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes. And, and so in some sense, Jesus is presenting the kingdom and he starts with stating who this kingdom is for. And so the Beatitudes are declaring this is who the kingdom is for. It's, it's for the poor. It's for the spiritual zeros. It's for the meek. It's for the humble ones. It's for the hungry and thirsty ones. It's, it's for the merciful. It's for the ones that are pure and hard. It's for the peacemakers. He's saying it's not for the ones that are proud. It's not for the self-righteous. It's not for the ones that are building themselves up. It's not for the ones that are striving in self-effort. No, it's for the ones that are, that are finding rest in Him. It's for the ones who are humble and contrite. It's for those ones. This is who the kingdom is for, and this is who the kingdom flows through. See, in a time when only the elite were considered of any significance, Jesus turns that on its head and says, My kingdom is for everyone. In fact, it's for the broken, it's for the poor, it's for the lowly ones. It's for the ones that everyone else says is insignificant. They are the significant ones in my kingdom. This is who it's for. Isn't that brilliant? I love it how Jesus just turns up and just turns it all on its head. 
So uh, a good framework to think about the Sermon on the Mount, uh, and we find this at the end of Matthew 7, where Jesus is sort of bringing the sermon to an end. He, he has these three things. He talks about choices. He talks about the fruit of choices. And then he talks about foundations. And so this is a good framework. So Jesus uses the idea of gates, broad, broad roads and narrow paths, narrow ways to depict the idea of choices, that we live with choices. Uh, he's revisiting Deuteronomy 31, you know, before you is life and death, choose life. He, he's revisiting the trees in the garden of Eden, the, the tree of life and the tree of judgment. He's, he's revisiting these things and saying, this is how the kingdom works. We have choices and then we live with the fruit of our choices. So now that we have been translated out of the kingdom of darkness and into His glorious light, are, are we going to live as ambassadors of heaven or are we going to continue to choose to live our own way? As Robert Capone put it, he said this, now that you've been given freedom, what are you going to do with it? Now that you've been given freedom, what are you going to do with it? So we all live by choices and, and choices have consequences, don't they? Choices have fruit. A good fruit or bad fruit. And then Jesus addresses the issues of foundations. What are we building our lives on? A kingdom that is shaken by every crisis, or as the writer of Hebrews puts it, an unshakable kingdom. So he ends his sermon with this thought about a wise man and a foolish man. The wise man builds his house on the rock. The foolish man builds his house on the sand. And the storms of life come. The rain comes and washes the foolish man's house away, but the house built on the rock stands strong. And he says this, before he starts that little uh, analogy, he says this, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and then puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. So, so this is the last part of the sermon. So, so we get to the end of the sermon and Jesus is saying, Look, go back. Read it again. Listen to it again. Everyone who hears these words and then puts them into practice is going to be like a man who built his house on the rock. If you listen and obey, you will be solid. So the rain comes at both, doesn't it? The, the storms of life come at both. And, and who knows that that, that uh, most of the time, I would like to suggest that the storms in life that we face are actually the fruit of the choices we've made. Sometimes there's a suddenly, isn't there? I mean, we got hit with a suddenly just last week. Sometimes we're hit with a suddenly, but more than often, the storms of life that we face are often the fruit of the choices that we made. And here's, here's the point. We don't really know what we believe until we go through crisis. It's not till the pop hits the fan that we, that we really know what we believe. Do I really believe what I say I believe? Uh, many of you will know uh, uh, our story, but for those that don't know... Um, when Ali and I first moved here to pastor the church, uh, 11 months into that, we, we lost our first child. Um, uh, uh, we had a, a stillborn at uh, 25 weeks. And uh, that, for me, was the most horrific 
thing I have ever been through. Um, and um, one of the toughest things that I've ever been through and to walk through and, and to, to reconcile and journey with the Father through. And, um, but someone who, who was quite wise said to me afterwards, sort of journeyed through that for a few weeks, that they came up to me and they said, uh, I trust you as a leader now. I said, oh, what do you mean? And they said, oh, I've always been told never trust a leader till you see them go through crisis. Because who knows, you know, you don't know what you believe until you go through crisis. And, and so when, and, uh, yeah, <laughs> who knows, that, that, that's often where the power comes from, eh? Do you know what I mean? Like that, that's where the anointing comes from. Uh, that's where the faith comes from. Uh, uh, what, what are we going to do when, when the pop hits the fan? When, when it all turns to custard, what are we going to do? How are we going to live? Are we still going to praise? Are we still going to live with a grateful heart? Are we still going to go to the Father? Are we still going to, to lift up His name and say that He's good? We don't know, do we? Until, until we go through crisis. And, and, and Jesus is saying that, that if you live a life, if you, if you hear and obey, that you'll live a life void of crisis. No, that's not what he's saying. No, no, he's saying when the crisis comes, you'll be stable. When the crisis comes, you'll still walk. When the crisis comes, you'll still know that he's good. That's what he's saying. And so when Jesus finished saying these things, it says that the crowds were amazed at his teaching. Amazed. Here's the thing. Don't just be amazed. Do something. Don't just believe it. Do something. Change something. Live differently. If, if, if the way you're living now isn't working, then change. I mean, this is what Jesus is saying. You know, you know, the way you're living now is, is having a cause and effect and, and, and there's things that are happening that were actually the fruit of the choices that you made. L live differently. There's a different way to live. And that's what Jesus is exposing. So Jesus lays down the challenge of trust as well. If you believe in me, take my advice, your life will be stable. If you believe in me, trust what I'm saying. The storms will come, but you will be stable. It's great, isn't it? Shane Willard says this, Your intentions are the starting point. Pure motives and a consistent obedience mixed with focus and intentions will lead you to a life that cannot be shaken. Uh, so next week, we're, we're going to dive into um, the choices aspect of, of Jesus' sermon. What, what does this mean to go through the narrow gate and the broad gate. What's he on about there? And, and what does that really mean? It, it, it really, Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, you need to live a life of intention. And no one accidentally follows the narrow road. Do you know what I mean? The, the truth is that most people are on the broad road, not because they are bad, but most people are on the broad road because they lack intention. Life's just happening. I'm just letting life happen to me. But Jesus is saying, no, no, there's a way to live with intention and focus that will bring the kingdom of heaven in your life. Walk that way. Uh, 
The other key thought that we see throughout the Sermon on the Mount, and, and I would probably like to suggest this is probably the key thought, is that how you treat others demonstrates what you believe about God. The issue of how we treat others is just weaved all the way through this message, all the way through the Sermon on the Mount. How we treat others is always the towel of what we believe about God. We always reflect the image that we have of God. God's angry. I'm going to show everybody that God's angry. God's mad. God's sad. God's, you know, whatever. We always reflect the image that we have of God. In fact, Jesus doubles down on this in Matthew 22 and essentially says this, how you treat others is how you treat God. <laughs> yeah. Here's some key themes that we find um, through the Sermon on the Mount. Number one, don't get what you want by judging how you treat others. Don't get what you want by manipulation, how you treat others. Do you trust that the kingdom works? What do you believe about God? Be aware of how your God concept affects others, how you treat others. Broad roads, narrow ways, do you trust God? And build your life on the right foundation, do you trust God? See, it can really boil down to these two things, love God and love others. And be very aware that saying you love God but treating others with disrespect and dishonour is an oxymoron in the kingdom. How we treat others is how we love God. Now I want to um, uh, just take a look at one particular passage uh, now and it's, it's Matthew five seventeen to 20. So have a look at that. Um, I wanted to start with this passage because it's sort of, it's in the middle um, and it's probably the most confusing part. So I thought, let's start with this. Um, and it sort of gives us some context about what Jesus is trying to do um, with, with the Sermon on the Mount. Because we see a lot of times in the Sermon on the, on the Mount where Jesus is kind of saying, hey, you've heard it said like this, but this is actually what I say. And so, so, um, so this part in Matthew 5 um, will hopefully help us to understand what Jesus is trying to do here. So Matthew 5, 17 to 20, it says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For I truly tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of, these, one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Pretty confusing, isn't it? Does this mean that I need to obey all the law, that I need to be more righteous than those self-righteous Pharisees? What, what's Jesus getting at here? So, so first thing that we need to, to think about here or understand is, is this is not about how to get to heaven when we die. Get that one out of your mind. But it is about how do we live now that we are in right standing with God. 
And, and how do we live in such a way that we can bring the culture of heaven into this world to drive back the culture of darkness? Come on, how, how do we saturate the Hutt Valley in the love and hope of Jesus? Is this important to us? Because it's important to Him. And if it's important to Him and His life is in us, then it will be important to us. See, the spirit of sonship looks like a passion for the Father's house and for the Father's business, which is His kingdom. But this particular passage is just a bit confusing. And I thought a good way for us to maybe unpack this a little bit is to have a look at a Bible project video that unpacks this for us. And they do it really quickly in a nice way. So let's, uh, let's have a look at this. You're most likely familiar with the Ten Commandments in the Bible, stuff we generally take as good advice. Don't murder, don't steal, honor your parents, the list goes on. And those are just the first ten. There are actually a total of 613 commands, all given to ancient Israel, found in the first five books of the Bible, which in Hebrew are called the Torah. Now, the word Torah is usually translated in English as the law because it has all of these laws in it. And as you read through them, you wonder, am I supposed to obey some of these, all of these? I mean, what's the purpose of the law? Well, that translation is kind of confusing because while the Torah has laws in it, the book itself is fundamentally a story about how God is creating new kinds of people who are fully able to love God and love others. And when Jesus taught about the Torah, he said that he was bringing that story to its fulfillment. So walk me through the story and how it's fulfilled. So the story begins with God creating humanity who rebels. And God chooses Abraham to bless all of the nations through his family, who end up in slavery down in Egypt, and so God rescues them. Then at Mount Sinai, God makes a covenant with Israel, like an agreement. And all of the laws that Moses gives to Israel are the terms of that agreement. They're like a constitution. And so some of the laws, they're about rituals and customs that set Israel apart from the nations. Other laws are about social justice or morality. And by following these, Israel would show the other nations what God is like. Okay, so the rest of the Torah is just the complete list of laws that Moses gives Israel? Mm, no, the rest of the Torah just continues the story. And the 613 commands are only a selection from that original constitution. And even these have been broken up and placed at strategic points within the story. Now pay attention because you'll see a really clear pattern. Moses gives the first laws to Israel. Yeah, don't worship other gods, don't make idols. And then right after that, there's a story of Israel breaking those very laws. Yeah, they worship the golden calf. And so Moses gives some more laws and then you get more stories of rebellion. Some more laws, rebellion again, some more laws, more rebellion, and you start to see the point. Right, no matter how many laws, they're just gonna continue to rebel. So at the conclusion of the Torah's story, Moses gives this final speech to Israel as they prepare to go into their new home. And he tells them, you guys, I know that you're not going to follow all of God's laws. You've proven to me that you're incapable. And Moses says the problem is that their hearts are hard and that they're going to need new transformed hearts if they're ever going to truly follow God's law. And he was right. I mean, the story goes on to recount Israel's total failure. They go into the land, they break all the laws. Right. Now, the next section of books in the Jewish tradition are the 15 books of the prophets, and they reflect back on the story. For example, Ezekiel, he said that if Israel was ever going to obey the law, God's spirit would have to transform their hard hearts into soft hearts. And Jeremiah said that's when obedience to God's commands wouldn't feel like a duty, but they would be written deep in their hearts. 
And Isaiah, he promised a future leader, Israel's Messiah, who will lead all of the people in obedience to the law. Now, in Jewish tradition, all of these books together are called the prophets, even the historical books, because they're continuing the story told from the perspective of the prophets. Okay, so we have the law and the prophets, and they're telling one connected story about God's desire to bless the whole world through a people, Israel, who it turns out needs a new heart. Yes, and Jesus saw himself as continuing that story. So he agreed with the law and the prophets when he taught that it's out of the human heart that come the most ugly parts of human nature. It's like the default setting of our hearts is opposed to God's law. But Jesus also said that he came to solve that problem and in his words, to fulfill the law. So what does he mean there to fulfill the law? Well, first he said that the demand of all of the laws in the Torah could be fulfilled by what he called the great command, that we are to love God and to love others. So that seems pretty easy. I mean, we all want to love. Well, we think we want to love. But Jesus showed how love is far more demanding than we realize. So he quotes the law, do not murder. And he says, yes, not killing someone is a very loving thing to do. But then he also says that when you treat someone with disrespect or when you nurse resentment against them, you're also violating God's moral ideal because you're not treating that person with love. And so Jesus said true love ought to extend even to our own enemies. So even though this command seems very simple, Jesus showed how our hearts are not currently equipped to fulfill even this basic command of God to love others. And that's kind of a downer. But where Israel failed, Jesus brought this story to its fulfillment. As Israel's Messiah, he fully loved God and others, and he showed all of the nations what God is truly like. He did this through his acts of compassion and mercy, and ultimately by loving his enemies even unto death. And after his resurrection, he told his followers that he would send God's spirit to transform their hearts so that they could follow him and fulfill the purpose of the law, to love God and to love their neighbor. So this fulfills the story of the law and the prophets, or in the words of the apostle Paul, the one who loves fulfills the law. This video was made possible by over 13. All right. It's a helpful way. So, love God, love others. That's what it all boils down to. Love God, love others. Simple, yet very hard. Simple, yet very hard. At one point, um, the religious leaders of the day, they they tried to pigeonhole Jesus um, and catch him out. And they asked him, well, what's the greatest commandment? And, And so... He does what Jesus does, and they ask him a question, and he sort of gives them a, a different answer. But they ask him, what's the greatest commandment? And, and he gives two. He says, love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. But then he says this, the other one is like it. So although he gives two, he says they're, they're the same. Love your neighbor as yourself. So he, he presents these as one command. This one is just like the other. To to love others is to love God. To hurt others is to hurt God. To dishonor others is to dishonor God. To abuse others is to abuse God. Why? Because we are the image of God. We are the image of God on the earth. And so to abuse the image is to abuse the maker. 
But remember when I said at the start that Jesus came to establish His kingdom and show us what it looks like to be fully human. He showed us what it looks like to fully love God, fully love others. And now this, this thing that is simple yet so very hard is only made possible because of our union with Christ. That His life has now become ours and through, his, through the union of His death and resurrection, we have been resurrected into a new life with a new heart with a new perspective and a new way of living. Uh, maybe think about it like this. It's, it's as if Jesus is saying, I, I have given my life for you, and if you will give your life to me, you'll be awakened with a brand new life in and through me. And, and so what is hard in our own strength is made easy in Him. Or, or easier, eh? So, so here's the point. We cannot love others like Christ loves them separate from Him. You, you cannot do this. Christ in you, you, you can do this. See, this way of living is only possible through surrender, not effort. If you want to try really hard to love others, you'll fail. It's when we give up our lives. It's when we give up our need to fulfill some sort of agenda. It's when we, we, when we give up our, our self-effort, our self-promotion, our self-righteousness. It's when we give up self, we are then empowered to love others as Christ loved them. So, so through surrender, not effort. It seems so opposite, doesn't it? You know, like, surely I've got to try hard at this. No, to, to try hard is to try and do it in your own strength. Surrender, not effort. So following Jesus is a life of surrender, not effort. So when we follow the story of the Bible, we can see that the human, tradition, human condition is terribly broken and, and we only need to look at, at the world around us to see that the human heart is, is broken, that, that humanity is hurting, that, that humanity is in pain. You know, we, come on, we only need to look at the news one night to see what's going on around us. And so the problem of the, with the heart of humanity is, is the problem of the human heart. And so in a very real way, Jesus is exposing the human condition through the Sermon on the Mount. It's almost like he's lifting the covers, you know, taking a little peek underneath and exposing the real issues, the human heart and the belief system that is controlling our behaviour. Jesus is pulling us out of an old covenant behaviour management perspective and pulling us into a new covenant belief management perspective. But who knows that behaviour is always the echo of belief. We, we always live out what we believe. Has anyone seen um, a picture of an iceberg and, and like a above water and below water picture? And, and you know, it's like you, you come along, I mean, you, you see an iceberg and you think it's, it's so big, but it's, it's massive underneath. Like there's just this whole other part to it that we, that we haven't seen. And, and there's a whole lot more below the surface. And this is what Jesus is doing on the Sermon on the Mount. He's saying, we've been looking just at the surface, but there's a whole lot more underneath. And this is what he's exposing. See, we only see what's going on on the surface. And, and let's be honest, we, 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 we judge one another based on the surface view. 
It's so easy to judge one another by our actions, but, but then we judge ourselves by our intentions. But Jesus, through the Sermon on the Mount, he's looking below the surface behaviour and exposing the belief system that is creating the behaviour. I mean, you know, murder. I don't know about you, but I didn't wake up this morning struggling with murdering someone. Did he? I don't, you know, maybe someone else did, but you know, I didn't struggle with that this morning. But Jesus is exposing that the core belief system is one of hate and bitterness. And that if we have that going on in our hearts, then, then that's, that is just like murder. And so he's exposing that this is, you know, this is a lot deeper than just our, our behavior. So he is exposing the iceberg below the water. And, and thankfully, here's the good news. He's not just pointing out the problem. He gave his life to be the solution. So just like the prophets of old that spoke of a day when our hearts of stone would be replaced with hearts of flesh, Jesus is the fulfillment of that. In him, all the requirements of the law are fulfilled, and in him we are given a new heart. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives us his manifesto of his new kingdom. And then he invites us to live in it and participate in this new way of living. Saying when everyone is going left, Jesus is saying, go right. When everyone else is hurting one another, Jesus says, bring healing. When everyone else is judging one another, Jesus says, stop being a hypocrite. When everyone else is showing off their gifts, Jesus says, do it with humility. When everyone else is focused on worldly wealth and success, Jesus says, store up treasures in heaven. He's saying, be people of an opposite spirit. See, this is not Jesus' manifesto on how to get to heaven when we die. It's Jesus' kingdom manifesto on how to live now that our hearts have been changed from the inside out. It's, it's how to live as light in the darkness and how to bring the God flavor in the world around us. How to live from heaven towards earth with the power and perspective of heaven. And he said it like this, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. See, this is Jesus saying, if you hear my words and obey them, even when the storms of life are raging, you will stand strong and you will live in such a way that the life and culture of heaven will saturate the world around you. And then everyone will see the light in your life and your good deeds and they'll give glory to your Father in heaven. When everyone will, doesn't admire your faith when it gets you something. They admire your faith when it costs you something. Come on, when we're faithful in the storm. Come on, who knows that, that when we hear testimonies from people and we're, and we're in awe and we're in wonder of, of God working in their life. Who knows that, that most of the time they are, they are powerful testimonies of people who have stood in times of crisis, who, who have stood in times of, of the, the, when the storms of life are raging around them and stood with faithfulness. They are the testimonies that make us go, yeah, that's it. You know, but the, you know, I prayed and got a new car. It's like, oh, yeah, that's all right. Why don't you stand with me this morning?
Let me pray. Thank you, Lord. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you said it's the Father's good pleasure to give us the kingdom. It pleases you to give us the kingdom. And we thank you that, that in Jesus, you've presented us with the kingdom. Now that we've been given it, what are we going to do with it? That's the question that you're asking us. Now that we've been given freedom, what are we going to do with that freedom? Are we going to use it for our own agenda or are we going to use it to bring glory to you? And we thank you that, that in, in your Sermon on the Mount that, that you, you have given a, a dissertation, you've unpacked what the kingdom looks like, what it means to live and participate in the kingdom. And, and we thank you that, that even though you, you've, you've unmasked the real issues, you've unmasked the, the belief systems that, that, are, that are controlling our behaviour, we thank you that you aren't just pointing out the problems, but you've given your life to be the solution. We thank you that, that it's because of, of your death and resurrection and, our, and our, our participation in that, that we have a new life, that, that we, are, we have a new heart, a transformed heart, and we can live from there. We thank you that this is not a, 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 a message of effort, but a message of surrender, a message of rest, a message of, of trusting your kingdom, of trusting your ways and not our ways and, and putting our faith and our trust in, in, in who you are. We, we thank you that you have given us the spirit of the son you love, that we live from a place of sonship. We live from a place of sonship. And it's out of that heart and out of that spirit that we live, not out of our own effort. So we just pray for each person uh, here this morning as we, as we journey through this over the next seven weeks. We thank you, God, that there is going to be revelation. There is going to be uh, a, an awakening of hearts, an awakening of spirits, that their eyes will be open to things that, they, that we haven't seen before, that, that there'll be new revelation that will spark a, a new way of seeing things and a new way of living, a new way of treating one another. And we thank you that, 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 that it's actually a really good uh, measurement for us. How are we treating other people? That's a good reflection of how we see you, God. And so I pray that, that as we journey through this, as we, as we find ourselves maybe uh, treating someone with dishonor or disrespect, let that be cause for us to consider, God, what am I missing about you? What is it that I'm not seeing about your heart that makes me feel like I can, I can control and manipulate others so that I feel better about myself. Father, we thank you that you are at work, that your spirit is at work amongst us. Father, I pray that we would be a people that represent you well in our community, not through our effort, but through our surrender. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Great. Well, I'm just going to hand over to Sarah. She's just got a couple of uh, final things for us before we have a coffee.